0: Hello. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Below the Radar. I'm Paige Smith, and I'm with SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. We would like to acknowledge that Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleut'in peoples. On this episode, we talk to SFU Psychology PhD student Scott Newfield and facilitator, freelance writer, and outreach worker Nicholas Crier about the work they do to promote ethical research practices in the downtown Eastside and beyond. They are part of the team that authored Research 101, a manifesto to ethical research in the downtown Eastside. Along with our host, Am Johal, Scott and Nick have a conversation about how this project came to be, the importance of conducting research ethically in all communities, and the profound impact it has had for the downtown Eastside community and beyond.
1: delighted to be here with Nicholas Crier and Scott Newfeld, And uh, maybe if we can just begin by introducing yourselves a little bit.
2: My name is Scott Newfeld. I am a PhD student up at Simon Fraser University, also a part of the BC Center on Substance Use. I'm doing a PhD in social psychology, but I've had a really long time interest in community-based research and especially research ethics in the context of community-based research. So that was probably the, the genesis of my interest in um, research ethics and people's experiences of research um, in a heavily researched community like the Downtown Eastside, and that's what led to some of the very early ideas around what became Research 101, and uh, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, my name is Nicholas Crier. I'm a long-term
3: Downtown Eastside resident, and I'm also involved with a number of projects, one of them being Research 101 uh, workshop series, and also I'm a co-author on the manifesto for ethical research in the downtown east side with Scott, and uh, I do a number of other kind of community-based stuff.
1: Now, the manifesto and the empowering informed consent rights card were both launched at an event in, I believe, it was late January, but there was. You know, a couple of years of work that went uh, into making that happen in a process. And of course, it started out from issues that arise from both academic institutions and researchers doing work in neighborhoods, but also media and artists who are trying to do work. And oftentimes, the waiver forms are done from the perspective of the institution or the artist doing the work. And people in the community oftentimes are in a vulnerable uh, spot in terms of having their rights represented. And so Maybe if I could start with you, Nicholas, in terms of past experiences that you've had or what you thought were some of the issues at stake in trying to come up with an approach to ethics from a community perspective. Like what were the issues that you were running into related to university researchers, uh, artists, other people trying to do work in the neighborhood here? I wasn't
3: myself really aware of it at first, that it had gone on so, so long with researchers kind of inundating this community with with their interests. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to want to research the downtown east side, I guess. Just not many people are aware of it down here. And when, I, when Scott sort of introduced me to the whole concept, and Sarah, uh, talking about her experience with filmmakers doing a documentary and they sort of didn't represent her the way she had wanted and stuff with it like they went forward without her consent this all this stuff sort of started dawning on me that yeah that's that's important right that people would be asked permission and that you would respect a community when you came into it and like you know offer to take your shoes off when you go in someone's house I think is the analogy I've been using and then Scott put together these workshops my wife invited me to and we just had a five weeks of really good discussions about the context of ethics in a research area and how that affects people. And then I realized my wife does that all the time. She does, uh, she participates in research as a, as a participant. So she does surveys and, uh, you know, like, interviews and whatnot where she's required to have a fairly trustworthy position in the community as as a peer Um, asking people really personal questions about their drug use and and whatnot these are things that you you know require life experience to have to even be able to pull off nobody's going to answer your your drug questions if they don't know you and stuff right so i started to see the value in those in those positions and we just realized that there's sort of nothing nothing sort of a that was you could call a statement of our own, like a position of our own, from, from a community perspective. That would say that we we realize that this is going on, and that that things are not being covered all the way, and that we just sort of want to cover our end on that on that perspective, and and make sure our rights as as Canadians, as as just community members, as drug users, as marginalized citizens as research participants and subjects were being respected and, and in a
1: dignified way. And I think that's what we've done so far. (laughs) Scott, from your your perspective as a PhD student and someone who's done research, you've, of course, dealt with ethics offices and that kind of thing. And and you've had a productive conversation with at least the the SFU one, but uh, you were in supporting and working on this project, had a set of questions that that you had in terms of broadening what ethics might look like and wondering if you can share kind of your uh, approach or how you entered into this conversation. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think for me, during my master's, I was doing a community-based participatory research project uh, out at a elementary school. that became known as Vancouver's Aboriginal Focus School, or H'pey Elementary. And we were working really closely with uh, the principal there, the first principal of the school. Her name was Vani Hutchinson, she's an indigenous woman from Haida Gwaii. Through the course of that, I was just also reading a lot about research and and thinking a lot about just the legacy of research and colonization, the ways that anthropological research or all kinds of health research has really harmed and misrepresented um, Indigenous communities in particular. And I was really surprised at the kinds of questions that I had about my own ethics application at SFU on that round. I remember one of the sort of key questions or or revisions that they requested was something around changing the word compensation that participants would be compensated for their time in focus groups that instead needed to be remunerated because compensation is sort of a legal term and we didn't want to give people the impression this was legal compensation or something it was something kind of a a sort of a pretty small detail like that i remember just thinking i feel like they've got to be bigger more weighty questions about representation and sort of the ethics of process with a community-based project like that. So that was maybe some of my initial foray into thinking, you know, what are the bigger issues around ethics when we're thinking about research and, and how is it that there can be so much research that happens in impacted communities that all of which would be approved by an REB at a university. And nevertheless, so many people have these experiences that they share of feeling disrespected by researchers or feeling left out of the process, feeling mistreated or misrepresented in some way. So there's sort of this contradiction there in a sense that one set of ethics that's guiding you know, reviews by really well-intentioned, really thoughtful people up at on REBs is nevertheless not quite meeting the needs of some communities when it comes to thinking through research And so in terms of like characterizing the problem within the downtown east side, I think I probably came to that first through being connected with different activist circles and and reading pieces by folks like Ivan Drury or folks from the Alliance Against Displacement, for example, that. We're talking about some of the research studies going on in the neighborhood and and how they felt these were really harmful. These were serving the interests of gentrification or um, the criminalization of people with mental health issues in the neighborhood. And I was really curious as a researcher to see that research could be implicated in these harms in these issues of social injustice. and so I was really interested in ways of intervening or learning more about that and what that experience was like and yeah, and ways of just elevating what what folks you know, living through that, uh, had experience for research, both positive and negative. Obviously, there's lots of really positive and thoughtful and respectful research that goes on. There's also a lot of research. I think one of the the key things that I've heard from people when you talk about research in the downtown east side is people saying both, you know, we've been researched to death and what positive change has actually resulted. And also, we're the most heavily researched community in the world. Both of those are just you know issues around just frequency and volume not even process and I think as I started to do a lot of the initial consultation and work in the lead up to Research 101 just meeting with different organizations and telling them about this kind of seed of an idea we had around a bunch of workshops talking about research ethics lots of people had uh, a real resonance with it and said yeah you know what we we're always getting asked by researchers by various you know artists or people for the same thing they want our stories they want our experiences and you know people saying that they'd had both good and bad experiences but also that they didn't always know exactly how to respond to those requests or how to evaluate them and I think just the value of a conversation across different organizations became really apparent and that's where it became really useful to connect in with Sarah Common from Hives for Humanity
1: yeah, I was going to add, you know, I think that there's so many issues that come up in these types of processes. I started first doing work in the neighborhood back in 98 uh, with Humanities 101, and even doing a, a course that wasn't research particular. There's a lot of issues that go into trying to initiate new projects, and I know that through my work at SFU, there were, you know, concerns around grad students trying to do master's work in the neighborhood. And so I got pulled into the conversation related to developing an ethics process with people people trying to initiate art projects, and so when I met you, Scott, you had taught in um, Community Journalism 101 at Megaphone, and you had approached me about possibly doing a a piece of research, and I was like, hey, who are you, man? Like, what's the research about? I'm not so sure. Like... We're trying to do a different type of project, and who's this guy I'm trying to do research? I, I'd briefly met uh, Nicholas because you were involved with uh, Illicit mm-hmm. at the time with Kelty McCracker, but your your timing of bringing up these things, and and, and Sarah was really instrumental in in coming forward with some concerns that she had had with a, with a project. But I would just say, first of all, kudos to both of you and Sarah and everybody else who was involved in producing the card, because as somebody who goes in and teaches classes where people are, you know, very interested in doing community work but don't necessarily have the background or experience, when I go in to talk about ethics in classes now, I not only show the uh, official sort of SFU ethics piece, but I bring the Empowering Informed Consent card, I give them a copy of Research 101. So when we discuss ethics, there's the institutional part, which is only one part of ethics, but this is a whole other framing. They all kind of point to similar things, but I think the ones that are written from the community side pack a much more powerful punch because they're giving very much a community narrative where oftentimes institutional approaches to ethics are really about risk management, not being sued, all of these types of things. And oftentimes the bureaucratic language that applies to funding agencies, those kinds of things don't translate on the ground. And I think those are some of the challenges. And I think both of the documents, I think, speak in plain language to some really important things. And just wondering, since you've launched it, I know that you were involved in a session during Congress of Social Sciences and Humanities at UBC back in the, in the summer. But since it's been out there, and out in the the community, what have you heard back about the card? What kind of impact is it having?
3: Impact? <clears throat> I'd liken it to an atomic bomb going off. <laughs> uh, or like, what is the word, viral? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been really fantastic. The response we've been getting from this is all over the place. I mean, uh, it's online, and we've traveled to Kelowna. We've been loops, and we've delivered it to... It runs full of people uh, so as uh, radio, so tournament TV. capital of Canada. Uh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. And Scott's an t- extremely talented writer, so you write the languages is, is made basically for the people uh, to understand. And and you're right. The, there's a a translation issue there, and, and like a social translation issue too, where the academics might not have the the confidence or whatever to to go forward and 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 reach out and and talk to the community members about their their research or whatever, because they don't understand. Right? There's like the class the way class structure is set up and stuff. There's a lot of stigma and judgment that goes on. Um, And they might just plain be scared to come down here and talk, you know, to a drug user or whatever. And this has sort of opened up a a doorway to that where when you can present it to them, um, they're like, what do you mean the community members already have something written um, an informed consent card. Really, okay. <laughs> I can just see the look on their faces because I have seen the look on their faces. And it's really inspiring to, that, uh, to see that because that's you know a, a shift in, in our society that, that wasn't happening there that I don't think would have happened unless we'd, we'd taken these steps, right? And I'm very fortunate. You're right, the timing was impeccable. I just feel very fortunate to have, have been a part of it. Hmm.
2: That's interesting what you said. I think that's an ex- another example of stigma that, you know, researchers who, or whomever, whomever it is coming into this neighborhood, have a lot of expectations or assumptions. And maybe those expectations around people's ability to articulate themselves, their needs, their expectations, and to sort of, um, yeah, have a kind of a strong line of defense or a kind of really empowered way of engaging. I think that's maybe surprising to some people. So. I'm glad this kind of heads that off from my perspective in terms of some of the impact. I mean, I've seen, I think there's sort of two, two branches of it. And that correlates with the two kind of arenas that we've tried to mobilize our knowledge, I guess, through this project. So at the one level there's within nice acronym drop. Yeah, exactly. At the one level within the downtown Eastside community itself, this was always really the, the primary purpose of the project was uh, spreading this, you know, what, the fruits of this conversation that we had through these workshops, whether that, you know, that being coming out of the, with the manifesto and also the empowering informed consent card, but spreading that around to different organizations as we've spread the word and and kind of told people about the work that we've done and and what we've you know drafted together. We've asked for people that you know organizations that really support it or, or see themselves as being really in alignment with it to signal that with what we call an endorsement, which is just a way of saying. Yeah, as an organization, we're on board with this. We think this is a good idea. We agree with the principles. Don't even necessarily have to agree with every single jot and tittle, every word of the of the of the manifesto, but um, to express that agreement, and that's helpful for us in terms of just demonstrating that a lot of different organizations and folks in the neighborhood experience these issues a, a similar way, and and kind of hold this up as as an important resource for empowering themselves and. Some of the impact that we've seen there, I really appreciate it when different people say, you know what, we get so many asks, and I don't always know how to respond, and now I can just pass this along. You know, I just literally send the manifesto back to some researcher, whoever it is, and say, here's some perspectives on what research is and and what good practice looks like to us. Let us know how you plan on meeting these expectations and and sometimes they never hear back from them and that's people see that as a kind of good like filter i guess if somebody isn't willing to do the work to take the time to to engage in a good process well then they didn't want to work with them anyways so that's one example of i think a good impact and then the other side is kind of reaching out more within the institutions universities research ethics boards researchers and also research trainees so graduate students Back in the beginning of the year, Nick and I did our first guest lecture. We went out to UBC and talked about the manifesto at a, I think it was a UBC anthropology research methods graduate class. Uh, And they were really, really interested in the work. And I think that's sort of a key audience to be reaching. We've done the same thing with uh, Simona as another co-author and Jim both joined me for a, Was a kind of a graduate research methods lecture for actually one for graduate students, one for undergrads, the Prof. at SFU Harbor Center here. That was just a, a month ago. Uh, so that's one example, and then with the REBs, that's been a really exciting part of this conversation. Is we've had a couple of meetings um, with representatives from SFU's Behavioral Research Ethics Board, SFU's Office of Research Ethics, and also Providence Healthcare, uh, which is the, the actual board that looks at most of the research coming from UBC uh, in the Downtown east side. Having all those folks at the table has been really cool, um, just to see their support, the recognition that REBs aren't necessarily set up to adjudicate research requests happening in the downtown side at the level that would maybe anticipate or respond to all the concerns that community members have. So they've been really good participants in this process. And I think, yeah, they really are interested in solutions and to the problems that they've seen themselves and haven't, I don't think they've been well positioned or resourced to address them themselves. So I think this process is something that's kind of filled a gap in a sense.
3: Fortunately, the downtown east side has been long-term history of of uh, of initiating their own interventions uh, regarding like, activism and and you know community based action to stand up for themselves or whatever Scott's wearing a hoodie that says don't read us the book that we wrote which is a quote by my wife from the manifesto and what she means is basically um that we know what we're what we're doing we're the experts in our own lives and uh, so we can we can handle this ourselves, I and mean, we just wanted hurt people the world to know that. I guess that that um, like with regards to harm reduction and a number of other things, but in particular with the research that uh, if given the given the opportunity we'd be able to handle this ourselves so the next step beyond the 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 printed manifesto and um you know handing it to the academics saying read this would be to have like a physical space for them to go to and meet community members and discuss research and and start building an archive of stuff of record and for you know for the the good of both sides to have a central place that they know they can go to, and meet somebody that they know is there for the same reason. Instead of just the researchers coming down and wandering around the alley or something looking for a research subject, or are you interested in answering some personal questions? <laughs> and that's uh, that's become the next step, I guess. And the next kind of great thing that we're working on is is trying to get a physical space up and running and working with the the other REBs, and I think they're quite impressed with you know the initiative that we're showing. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed with all of them. There's 15 co-authors on this thing.
2: (laughs) And for the moment, we're calling that the Community Research Ethics Workshop, just to signal that's sort of a a thing that's in process that we're trying to figure out. And we've got a small grant that we've got from SFU's Community Engagement Initiative that's been supporting some of that, as well as different partner funds and and resources. And it's been pretty cool. Just trying to explore, what would that look like? And how could that develop in a meaningful way here, an actual place where community members could could be acting essentially like a, an REB, like a research ethics board, and applying their own understanding of what is ethical, what is respectful in their own context of, of the downtown east side based on their lived experience and using that to usefully inform and, and evaluate research proposals at an early stage. So that's kind of what we're putting a lot of effort into right now.
1: Yeah. Now, in the manifesto and the Empowering Informed Consent Card came out of you know specific needs and issues that came from the community. But I can remember back in the late 90s when Jim Green and Michael Ames used to teach an anthropology course and Humanities 101 students actually acted as the ethics board to Mm -hmm. approve research happening in the neighborhood. So this has been going on a long time and people have tried to do different types of uh, interventions over the years. But I think it's been some time before these types of cards have been able to be distributed. I know that they were done in the spirit of sharing them with other organizations because other ones have different kind of policies in place, but they're meant to be adapted to the specific context of the local organization. But as they've been distributed uh, nationally and even internationally, Internationally that people have been probably asking about how to adapt them to their local context and just wondering how are you hearing about them uh, circulating to other places and are groups intending to uh, adapt them uh, outside of the downtown east side as well
3: the most recent ones I've heard involve uh, the Canadian Association of people Who use drugs want to do a review and see how it's tr- translatable to their. Context And uh, the UBC once is working with uh, myself. I work at Megaphone and the Speakers Bureau, and they do a storytelling process, workshop process, that's partnering with UBC Transformative Health and Justice Research to go into institutions with justice-involved people, so into prisons. And um, I suggested something like the, along these lines to them last week, and they were really receptive to the idea of developing a resource that you could give to prisoners inside that would sort of prepare them, like teach them about stigma, teach them about um, storytelling, and, and have them begin to process that, that stuff and, and learn about it, because in prisons probably don't know that much about it like they're not really thinking about it that when they get out they don't have much to go on right uh and the world is against them so wouldn't it be nice if they like had something like this to read that was like contextualized like you said towards them and maybe get out and be able to have you know a big room full of people waiting for them to hear their personal story because that's uh what we found really is effective like even the research the little research that's been done on stigma and, and colonization and stuff is that it's it's storytelling uh they people when people are able to meet the person in person and hear their personal narrative about their experience that they're more likely to have an empathetic reaction to it and therefore more more likely to change their ideas about it um and that's that's really exciting to me because that's you know on big picture that's huge and so yeah we're working on that
2: i think it's a good good question of you know what is the the relevance or the generalization of the work that we've done in this really specific context around what are this community's expectations around ethical respectful people from this community you know so how does that translate beyond the downtown east side and does it and so Nick and, and me and, and a couple of the other co-authors published an article in Harm Reduction Journal in the summer uh, that kind of describes a bit of the wider context of how we came to the development of the Research 101 Manifesto and and also Yeah, just contextualizes this process, describes what we did in a bit more detail than the manifesto does. And and at the end it, it sort of concludes with a, you know, this is an internationally available journal. And so we kind of, you know, what is what is the relevance in thinking about this? And I think the thing that I'll continue to advocate is really that there could be a Research one-on-one process in lots of other places that you could do the same thing that we've done here, which is do the work of getting to know some of the key players and organizations and, and individuals with the right experiences and expertise of, of research or whatever kind of engagement it is that's going on in a community get them together and have a a certain kind of conversation around people's experiences, positive, negative, but most importantly, their expectations find a way of summarizing that and find a way of sharing that around. I think that can be a really culturally contextually specific process that could be replicated, you know, and that's, I think ethics, people's expectations of what is respectful, what's appropriate are really tied to places and specific histories. There's a lot of you know, studies that people are familiar with in this neighborhood that, you know, those have been, some of those have been bad experiences. And it's those specific experiences and histories that shape what people's expectations are. And those might be different in another place in another, in another community. With in
3: regards to today, actually, there's an article in the paper about how BC is, has put table a proposal to have the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights adopted to the canadian constitution and that ties in with research around indigenous people going back hundreds of years right um that that you know native people were not really that respected in the research and there are more research than anybody around here for hundreds of years and that's that's important now because the un declaration of indigenous rights was not actually accepted by canada at first 12 years ago when it came out and now you know it just happens to be that they're they're, you know, BC is fighting for their acceptance of those rights. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out and, and sort of that's enshrined in law now. And and a lot of big major changes are, are happening here for Indigenous people. So I just want to acknowledge the, you know, the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, Swetertooth, the Musqueam, and the Squamish that we're on, and recognize that, you know, from my perspective, both as a guest, as an Indigenous person, as a downtown Eastsider, um, but also from the perspective of my, my co-authors uh, from an academic institutional point of view, that uh, we really understand that it's about disrespect of the, the territory, the space, you know, that uh, there was others here first doing the work first, that um, that you know, their history is as much of value here as, as anything that we're not really thinking up anything new or or anything, just sort of presenting ideas that were already there. And I like what Scott said about just go, doing the work of going out and meeting people and, and stuff, and realizing that in almost any community, there's going to be passionate people that are that are at a disadvantage, and that you know there's going to be people with means that can bring those means to the people, and and however you know you have to break it down uh, to show them that they're valued and that they that they can participate really does an amazing things for the empowerment of those people. Um, I've just seen, seen some, my wife, she's, you know, her and I are, are not even high school graduates, really, but she, but she gets published in academic journals like the new England journal of medicine publishes her about safe consumption and stuff. And those are, those are amazing things to be a part of in this time and day and age with Greta Thunberg and all that. <laughs>
1: Now now, Nicholas, now that you've got in your in your c v you're a published peer reviewed journal article, how did that go over with your friends and family that you're like now uh, in the academic uh, realm? Okay, I was adopted <laughs> by
3: uh, by academics actually my grandmother is a was a university professor for thirty years and my uncle Josh has a, the highest academic average for a number of years in Canada, and yeah, they were blown away. They were just like. I mean, they knew I was smart. I always knew I, I had a talent for writing, but I didn't. I couldn't explain the you know rules of writing for you. For me, it's a gift, that, yeah, that talent, and one uh, I, I was sort of making use of through illicit and, and other sort of community-based projects, but. Um, that it takes a lot of, of my own initiative to like stay on top of it and and like right now i'm doing three projects a play and i work and uh and it's all geared towards helping and empowering this community because i just i believe in it so much and i i realized that there's there's so few of us around that kind of have the interest um the access uh and it's it's growing i have gotten some major, you know, r- really important contacts that I, I feel if I don't do something with them in the, in the moment, right, I might miss that opportunity and that, and now that opportunity is on behalf of a number of people, right, uh, so there's like, you know, an ethical review process that we're doing of a show that came out and, and that, that if I don't do it um, given the context of the the job that they had given me to do I'd be laying down a whole bunch of people in this neighborhood and they would be misrepresented and um, and that would be my responsibility right so they don't even know that I'm doing this and they never will and they might never watch the show and they might not even be interested or even like me but uh, it's still my responsibility and I take it seriously and so yeah my family and friends are are happy for me <laughs>
1: Yeah, Scott, uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar, and thank you so much for the wonderful work you do. Really look forward to seeing where the conversation keeps going. Amen. Thank you. Thanks
2: very much.
0: Thank you again to Scott Newfield and Nicholas Cryer for joining us on this week's episode of Below the Radar. If you'd like to learn more about Research 101, we've provided a link to the digital copy of the manifesto, as well as a blog post that talks more about the project in the episode description. Next week, we'll speak with Tiffany Muller-Myrtle, a senior lecturer in SFU's Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, in addition to the Urban Studies program. I often kind of joke about the fact that I'm a feminist geographer with people because people don't necessarily think of putting those two words together. So I usually explain that I am interested in social change and the city Who has power in the city and who's part of the planning process and who is left out of that. An easy place for people to imagine the combination of feminism and geography is to think about safety in cities and how cities are safe for some and less safe for others. Be sure to tune in next time for another episode of Below the Radar.